0: 1 John, on our way through finishing the Bible, through the Bible, and it's been about eight and a half years. By the time we finish, it'll be close to nine. But 1 uh, John is an amazing book, and, and I and will spend some time in it. Last week, we went through the first chapter of 1 John. And in case you weren't here, or to remind you, John was emphasizing... Well, he began to talk about some of the things he wanted to accomplish by writing the book. And he said, I really want you to get connected to God and to each other. I want you to have the fellowship that that God wants you to have. And he also said, I want you to have your joy fulfilled. I want you to receive the joy that that God has for you. But he, he said, that has to happen by you opening your eyes. Walking in the light instead of walking in the darkness. Because most people get through life by closing their eyes every time it gets scary. Or there's something you don't want to see, so you go into denial about it. But John was expressing in that first chapter the the importance of us agreeing with God about our condition and about that which the Bible calls sin. As we, as we talked about it, I... I mentioned that the word for sin hamartia which often people say that it means to miss the mark and it it does in a way but it's a richer word than that because the the root of it is the word uh, comes from the word the word meros which refers to your portion or your allotment or your destiny that which has has been divided up and handed to you. And then it has the A affixed to the prefix, which means not. And so the the biblical idea of sin is anything that gets in the way of you being everything that God wants you to be. It's blocking his ability to bring you to your destiny. It's allowing the life to be removed from you so that instead you close your eyes and you choose to to walk in, in, uh, in death and in darkness. And so the whole first chapter was talking about this denial that people will come to and go, okay, I don't sin. And he goes, if you say that, you're calling God a liar. If you say that, you're obviously not looking in the mirror. If you say that, you're fooling yourself. You're deceived. He goes, no, the... Truth is, you do. You are constantly doing things that block that which God wants to do in your life. You're constantly violating your own nature and your own potential by living in the way that you do in a self-destructive way. And God's been trying to communicate to mankind, hey, some of the things you're doing is killing you. And as long as you live in denial of that, you will continue to be a victim of that. The solution is not to fake it, because life is designed to be a fellowship. Life is designed to be close to God and close to each other. And denial of our sin will not only rob us of our closeness to God and to each other, but it'll prevent our life from ever becoming what it can be. And so in the first chapter, he said, here's what you do. The key is this confess. That word means say the same thing. Just stop denying it and start admitting what you're doing. Admit that you're failing. Admit that you're coming short. And live with an openness about that because He says that He will forgive you. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he wants to do that work in our, in our lives. And so that's, the fact that it's been provided for is really important for us to understand. Now, as he comes to chapter 2, he gives us even more here in the first couple verses, a, a safety net of sorts. He wants to remove the anxiety that we have that causes us to go, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to mess up. I'm afraid I'm going to sin. He doesn't want us to live in fear of sin. The, the victory over the effects of sin does not come because we try really hard not to do it. I know many of us have struggled with certain sins and the harder we try the harder it is to, to have victory over them. But that's not how it works with him. And so beginning with verse 1 of chapter 2 he says, my little children, just a term of affection. He was an older guy by this time and, and looked to them as being those who were younger and less experienced. These things I write to you so that you may not sin. Now, it, he isn't saying, I'm telling you this stuff so that you'll stop sinning. You can't stop sinning. The whole first chapter already made that clear. No you're a sinner. If you, if you claim you're not sinning, you're fooling yourself. But, he says, it's still, it's not that it has nothing to do with sin. He goes, yeah, you're banging your head against a wall. I want to help you to stop. I want you to quit destroying yourself. That's part of the idea. You are your own biggest problem. But he says, I write it so that you won't sin, and if anyone sins we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation or the payment for our sins and not for ours only but also for the whole world. The way it's written in the English, if anyone sins, we see it that way because we all pretend like we don't sin that much. But the the construction here in the Greek was called a third class condition. The idea wasn't on the unlikely event that somehow you might actually sin this week. But really, it could be translated since you're going to sin. The fact is, it's assumed that you do. I mean, the whole first chapter made that pretty clear. So he says, yeah, I'm trying to get you to stop messing up your life. But when we sin, and again, he says, if anyone sins, which is a broad thing, and then I love that he used the pronoun we. We, he goes, I'm, I'm old. I've known, I, I lived with Jesus for three years, and I'm, I'm here living faithfully, but I'm telling you, I put myself in the same category. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Advocate is a word that would refer to an attorney, and it's probably part of the idea that's here, But interestingly, the word that's translated advocate is actually the word parakaleo in the Greek, which is a word that many of you are familiar with. It means to be called alongside. The idea isn't just that you have someone who will defend you, although at times that's what's entailed. Over in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that he forever lives to make intercession for us. So he is doing that and he will defend us. But... It's a more intimate word than that. What he's emphasizing is he is righteous and he is with you. A parakaleo, the word is used to refer to the Holy Spirit when it calls him a comforter. Um, Other times the word is translated exhort or something like that, but always the emphasis is not that I have someone out in front of me dragging me or not that I have someone behind me driving me, but he comes alongside us and puts his arm around us and says, I'll walk through this with you. See, he has been tempted in everything as we are, yet he didn't fail. He knows the way through whatever trials we are going through. And as a result, we can say, He is with us. He's going through this with us, He is by our side. We've called for him and he is there. And that should provide great comfort to us. Especially when it involves him being with us and, and then sticking up for us in heaven to the Father. See, and paying for our sins. God wants fellowship with us. And when we do things that deny ourselves of that which God has for us, it tends to block that. But Jesus comes, and again, as he said in the first chapter, just confess, just agree, just go, yep, that was stupid. And he removes it, and then he puts his arm around you, and he goes, come on, let's go right into the throne room of God. Let's go right into the Holy of Holies. You can come to God. The devil wants to make you think that the things that you do mean that you lost your permit to come into heaven. And Jesus is there to say, now, I'm glad that you're admitting that you're a sinner. I'm glad that you are living your eye, with your eyes wide open, that you're not in denial, that you're not like a little kid who when they get scared, they close their eyes and think the danger is going to go away. You close your eyes, it's going to get a lot more dangerous often. But, you know, here he's gone, look, we have this amazing insurance policy, this safety net. Yes, we want to grow. Yes, we want to stop destroying ourselves and others. But we have a parakaleo. We have someone alongside of us who's with us, who has been through it. And he actually pays the penalty for our sins and he is the propitiation not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. What better safety net could you have? We're not go- now, life is scary and life is dangerous, but we're not working without a net. It's kind of like when you go to some of these ropes courses, and some of you have done it maybe out at the youth camp or other places, and you do things that are scary, and yet you know you have a safety line attached to you, and it's really not scary. I mean, you look at, on TV shows all the time, they have people doing these amazing things, but they always have a safety net. So it's not, now, I agree that, like, The Amazing Race and some of those shows would be a lot more interesting if they had to go walk across a waterfall with no net or no safety line, and that might be entertaining, but it just doesn't work for corporate life. And so they always make sure that you're safe. And that's the kind of guarantee that God has given us. And it should incredibly set us free. The, if we're living our lives constantly scared of sinning or afraid of fail, failure, um, we don't understand how good we have it. Because he sets us free and then says, Now, obviously, don't hurt yourself. But if you do, I'm there. I'm there for you. All you have to do is admit it, and that'll happen. Now, it's interesting that it says he's not only the payment for our sins only, but also for those of the whole world, and I just want to mention this. If, if this verse alone were the only one that I have, I would have a real hard time believing in what's called limited atonement. Now, I love Calvinists, I love people who believe in Reformed theology, I, I share so much of their theology, their love for the scriptures and everything else, but John Calvin developed this doctrine, um, at least he's the one who popularized it, that Jesus only died for those who are elect, those who are chosen. He didn't die for everyone. So when Calvin dealt with this verse he said, obviously this can't mean that he died for the sins of the whole world, because then everyone would get saved like universalism. Now, we know everyone doesn't get saved, so therefore, the logical step is to go, when it says the whole world, it must not mean the whole world. But the problem is, the same word, I mean, later he says, love not the world, neither the things which are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. And so, it seems to me that it's clearly a vision of the world. Um, therefore I believe that Jesus died for everyone I believe what Peter said that he isn't willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance I understand why people would believe limited atonement because in some ways it makes better sense but the fact is Jesus was able to die for everyone and still give them a choice as to whether they want to receive that which he paid for now you know a lot of times you'll have Somebody will donate money to pay scholarships for camp, but not everyone goes to camp, and sometimes those go unused. Whenever we have a barbecue or something like that on a Wednesday night, we buy like way more hamburgers and hot dogs and stuff than we actually use. God's extravagance looks at it, he doesn't feel like, oh, I wasted some of my blood. I you know, I, uh, I sh- oh, man, I died for some people and they didn't get it and that trips me out. Um, John himself over in John chapter 1 made the statement that, that Jesus came and he lightens everyone who comes into the world and yet he also said, but as many as receive him to them gave he power to become the sons of God even to those who believe on his name. So the gift has to be appropriated and I think everyone, even some of the more severe Calvinists, would agree that his death was sufficient for everyone. And I think the most radical Armenian would agree that, but it's only efficient for those who receive him. So, um, but here, what John is trying to say is, there isn't anything that comes short in his sacrifice. You can go to anyone and tell them Jesus died for you. He loves you. He will forgive your sins. As in the first chapter, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sins. And I'm glad he didn't just say it cleanses us from most, or that most of the things that you do are forgivable, but there are some that aren't. Because if he made a list of which things he can forgive, in a room this size, some of us would just be sunk. Because we probably, we could probably find someone in this room who has done most sins that are available. At least most of us have tried to exhaust the list. But John is going, no, all of it, everything, it's paid for. There's no reason to feel that, oh no, something's going to happen and then I'm just messed up and this can't happen. And so he paints this picture of this amazing safety net that he wants us to live above. Now, there's a good reason why we need this kind of guarantee because life, as he calls us to live it, is dangerous. It's a life whereby we take chances. But he wants to let us know the danger is an illusion when it comes down to it because you are taken care of. You are protected. It's safe underneath where you live. In order to be who God has called you to be, he's going to take care of you. Now he says, beginning in verse three, now by this we know that we know him. And by the way, this is another one of his purposes in writing the letter. In in the first chapter, he said, I'm writing so you'll have fellowship with God, fellowship with each other, and I'm writing so that you'll have your joy made full. Now he says, Here's another thing, I want you to be secure. I want you to know that you're safe. I want you to have the feeling that, yeah, I know I'm God's child. Now, he isn't telling us the things that follow in order to tell us how to become one of God's children. He already covered that in the first chapter. All you do is open your eyes and confess. But now he is saying, it's one thing to be forgiven. It's another thing to feel forgiven. It's another thing to go, I, I'm, I feel safe in the arms of my father. And so he says, we know that we know him. That's what we're talking about. Over in chapter 5, he says, I've written these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants us to have that security. So he says, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... Truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So he says, here's how you can know that you're in him. You keep his commandments. Now, the word that John uses here for keep is a word that John uses a bunch. Between the gospel of John, like in the other Gospels will use this word like three times. John used like 17 times in the Gospel of John. Altogether, John uses the word, it seems like, 36 or 37 times in all of his books combined. And all of the writers of the New Testament put together, including all Paul's epistles, Jude, James, and everything, they don't use it that many times all combined. So this is a word that he focuses on. It's not a word that's sometimes translated keep that means to guard or protect. But the idea is it's more to keep an eye on and to hold value in. He's not saying you do everything that he says because if you claim you've done that, he already said you're a liar. But now he's talking about do you take seriously what God says? Do you take his commandments, do you take his word and go, yeah, I really want to live that way? And he says, if you do that, you know, that'll show that you know him. And if you say you know him and what he says doesn't matter to you, you're lying. The truth isn't in you. But whoever keeps the word, you'll see the love of God actually growing in you. That's how we know we know him. If we say we abide in him, we ought to walk as he walked. So he says, here's the thing. Someone who has put their faith in him, someone who has confessed their sin, that is, you go, I am walking in the light because I want to be close to God, so I am being honest. I am facing the reality of my failure, my inability to save myself or to bring my life into the place where it's really going to be click and it's really going to be good. Confession is an element of that. But how do you know you're really saying the same thing that God says? Well, you care what He says. And you can sit there and pretend like you're a Christian or pretend like, oh yeah, I want to do things God's way. I want God's will done. But if, if you really mean that, wouldn't you listen to what he says? Wouldn't you want to read his word, for instance, and find out what he says? And when you're, in a, when you're in a decision-making situation, wouldn't like going, what does God want? What is he saying to me? Wouldn't that become one of the premier concerns of your life? Of course it would. And if you're just saying, and, and this is where something's dangerous, and I wouldn't tell anybody, oh, you're just not a Christian. But if I was in a position where I was just going, I know what God wants, but I'm just not going to do it, you got to wonder. I mean, do you, do you even believe what he says? Do you believe that if he tells you that this activity or this decision or this way of life is going to rob you of The destiny that God has for you, if you say my behavior is sucking the life out of my life according to God, I mean, wouldn't you at least want to go, yeah, I really want to do what he wants. Now, sometimes you're going to be wrong. You're going to think that it's God and it's really not. And I have people all the time who tell me, yeah, I feel like God's telling me to do this or this and I just think, I don't know, sounds like a dumb idea to me. But I would much rather have someone doing something dumb because they really believe that God is calling them to do it than for me to talk them out of doing something that they believe God wants them to do. Because our being blessed is not contingent on us doing the right things. Our being blessed is based on our intention of wanting to do what we feel God is telling us to do. And sometimes we're going to get it wrong and sometimes we're going to mess up and we have a safety net for that. We're absolutely safe. God's grace means we don't have to be paranoid. We don't have to sit and worry, oh I'm afraid this isn't the right thing. And sometimes when people are struggling with a decision, I just tell them, you know what, why don't you just do something? Why don't you just step out? That's what faith is. Make, make your call. You'll be glad that you did what you, what you thought God wanted you to do. And that is part of keeping his word and his commandments. It's like, that's paramount to me. That's what I intend to do. That's how I want to live. Now, if you really do keep his commandments, if they mean something to you, but you never read your Bible or go to church or anything, I got to wonder, I mean, do you really Does it really matter to you? Worse yet, if you're going, yeah, I have some stuff. I know I shouldn't do it, but whatever. I'm just doing it anyway. Now, again, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. He's already eliminated that, taken it off the table in the first chapter. Now, there are some people who never get that. In fact, they read 1 John. They ignore the first chapter. They start reading this stuff, and they just go, yeah, I think we can stop sinning. In fact, I think I have. I I heard a woman teacher years ago who was talking about sin, and she said, you know, when you're a new believer, you're sinning all the time, and then as you grow, you're sinning a lot less. And she said, I'm really at the point where I can't even remember the last time I sinned. And I felt like shouting out, I can remember it just (laughs) then. (laughs) You're calling God a liar. But see, it's all about the fact that He is taking care of us But he wants us to face the truth. He wants us to be honest with ourselves. A lot of us live our lives so that we insulate ourselves from the truth. We just hide. We don't want to be around anyone who might remind us of the fact that we are a failure. Listen, understanding that we fail is the most important step toward not failing so much. Because he has taken care of us. But you can't experience his forgiveness until you admit who you are. And there are a lot of people who are just like living in denial. And that's what John calls walking in darkness. And again, as he he lays it out here, he says, the love of God will be perfected in you. And we're going to see that in the next few verses, that a lot of this just comes down to love. But you'll grow. God's love begins to work in you. You get better at it when you do this. And then he says, finally, obviously, if, you're, if you abide in him, you ought to walk like him. And that's the, that's the deal, ultimately, is our lives should start looking more like Jesus if we let this happen, if we don't get in the way, if we, if we come clean, if we're honest, if we quit faking it and pretending his life becomes ours in in an amazing way. So we read the Gospels about the life of Jesus. And we get a feel for what he was like. And Jesus was really unpredictable. The whole rest of the New Testament kind of interprets his life and comments on it and talks about it. And a whole lot of the Old Testament was getting across the same message. But ultimately Jesus was I mean, you'd look at him and go, man, he surprises me a lot. Some of the people he hangs out with, some of the decisions that he makes. He lived an absolutely fearless life, but he, you know, he, he didn't like religious people very well. And he, he would show grace to people who no one else would show grace to them. He was always patient and loving with people and he in a lot of ways we'd look at his life and go I don't even want to be like that because if I'm like that people will run all over me. But what happens once we come clean we will just see that naturally we start to look more like him. I'm convinced that a lot of people who call themselves Christians are just the Lord looks at them with pity and embarrassment and just feels like oh man, I'm so sorry for the kind of people that are representing me. They don't represent me at all. But John is saying, no, your love will be perfected and your life will start to look like him. You'll start to look less like you but in fact you're actually looking more like you. He doesn't want to take away who you are. He wants to make you the best you that you can possibly be. And there'll be this amazing resemblance to Jesus and his love when that happens. Now, he goes into saying, again, as the love of Christ is perfected in you, there's this change in your life, and it has to involve your connection with others. This isn't a life that is led on your own. It's real easy to be honest and open by yourself. But it gets really tricky when other people are involved. And so now he he begins to share in verse 7, and he says, Okay, brethren, I'm not writing a new commandment to you. You've heard this before. But an old commandment which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. So he says, I'm going to talk to you about love. And really, this is what life has always been about. This has always been a pivotal point in life. And it's not some earth-shattering new revelation. Jesus, talking about the Old Testament law, said, okay, get this. Forget all those rules and realize what they all come down to, two things that are so closely related that you can't really separate them. One is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the other one is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So John is saying, this is kind of still what it comes down to. It's always been about love. It's still about love. That's what your life is going to look like when you understand that you're secure, that it's safe to love. But then he says, on the other hand, it is kind of a new commandment. Verse 8, again, a new commandment write to you. I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling. The Greek word there is There It's not scandalous. It's not going to be a trap. It's not going to be a setup. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. A new commandment. That's a lot like the old one. But it is there is something that makes it new. Because John recorded where Jesus over in John 13 told the disciples, a new commandment I'm giving to you. So this is what John's talking about. And what Jesus said there in John 13:34 is a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. So what makes it new is people have always been told to love. Just about every religion, with a couple of notable exceptions, tell you that love is a good thing. So nothing new about that. But what was new about Christianity was that Jesus said, I want you to love people like this. And he laid his life down. He gave his life. And that's why Paul over in Romans 5 8 says, But God showed his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's one thing to preach at people about love. It's another thing to demonstrate it to them in a very tangible and eternally impacting way. And that's what Jesus did. And so John said, no, we've been shown what love is. And that's the kind of love that we are to have. And ironically that if we refuse to love in that way, our world just starts to get darker. Our world gets more and more whereby we are surrounded by denial, where we're not able to to be honest and open, where our world just closes in on us. And, And, you know, as he says, you can't hate your brother and be in the light. That doesn't work. Because people who walk with Jesus care about others. They love them. And so again you're in denial if you're bitter and angry and upset with people. Um, that's a tough thing because every one of us will struggle with that at times. But he says if you hate your brother you're in darkness. And you walk in darkness. And you don't know where you're going. The darkness is actually blinding you. Now what does this all have to do with what he's talking about? Let me try to pull it together for you. Walking in the light is risky. It is. Just being honest, even with yourself, it's threatening. Because often I can think I'm more comfortable when I'm in denial. And certainly with other people. For me to be honest with who I am, there's a greater chance that people are going to judge me and accuse me and use it against me and take advantage of me. That's just what, what happens There's a risk. And then when you talk about loving others, love is a a huge risk. That you reach out to someone else with the knowledge that they may not respond to that in the way that you would want to. And yet, that's what Jesus did. I mean, you go, you know, I really want to reach out and and touch someone else. I, I really want to express God's love to them and extend my friendship to them. And so you do that, and then they burn you. They laugh at you, they reject you, whatever. Here comes your parakaleo. And he goes, trust me, I know how you feel. I know what that kind of loss, what that kind of insult, I know what that kind of injury is, because I've been there. But he says, I'm telling you, I have you covered. I am underneath you with, a, with this beautiful insurance net. That you can continue to do that and this will not destroy you. The fact is what will destroy you is if you stop trying. If you stop loving because the cost of love is so much. He says, I get what that means, but I'm telling you, insist on walking in light. Insist on being real. The payoffs are enormous. And it's interesting that a lot of people live their whole life in fear of what could happen if they lived their life. And as a result, they just like, oh, you know, I can't do anything because everything is dangerous. Howard Hughes was this way towards the end of his life. Wouldn't even go out of his apartment. And he, he wouldn't wear shoes because they were dirty. So he walked around with Kleenex boxes on his feet and he, he wouldn't let anyone in. It was, everything was sterile and when he died, his body was just full of all kinds of disease. Because if you don't go out, then everything that's inside will kill you. You're carrying those things even in you. And so you need that contact. You, you take, you know, a lot of times people with their first baby, they're protecting the kid from everyone. And they're like, oh, I don't want him to get a cold. I don't want him to get exposed to anything. And so like their kid, they won't even let you hold their kid. That's how you know it's the first kid. <laughs> and that kid often is going to constantly struggle with, you know, um, allergies and all sorts of other things because they haven't built up the resistance that comes from being out there. Now, after you have another kid, you're just like, forget it. I don't care if he get sick or not. Here, pass them around the room <laughs> to give mom a break. And that's actually healthier in general to do with someone. Our life is like that. If you want to have an abundant life, there are risks involved. But we have a God who loves us, who is going to pick us up if we fall. And he knows that we will. If instead, we, you know, Franklin Roosevelt said, there's nothing to fear except fear itself. Now, the truth is there are other things to fear other than just fear itself, but that's a pretty good idea. We should be afraid of fear. We shouldn't be afraid to live our lives in, in paranoia because nothing will rob us of our destiny faster than not living life. And so if we, if we turn inward, we don't even try anything, then you already lose. You already have missed out on life. The abundant life is found when you're going for it, including taking some risks, and we have a God who says, yeah, I know when you risk, you're going to mess up, but I want you to do it anyway, because I have something in the light, something in reality that's going to, that's going to feed your life with, with great things. There was a, years ago, I heard a story from one of my college professors at Biola, and he talked about in a small town, there was a gal named Mary Jones, and in that town, Anytime someone died, they always wanted to give them press coverage. If you look at some of these small uh, s- newspapers in little places, you know they always feel like, okay, everybody's entitled to be in the newspaper at least twice when they're born and when they die. And in that town they would write up a little obituary and then also if people didn't have a family they had a, a, a county plot there and they would give them a tombstone and the obituary they would put on the tombstone and and leave it there for them. So Mary Jones died, didn't have any relatives, never been married, never had kids. She just lived alone. And they couldn't find anything good about her, bad about her, or anything. She was just there and died as an old woman alone. And, and so they finally said, well, we got to write something. And so the newspaper editor just assigned it to the sports writer. And they said, here, you do it. And so here's what he wrote for the newspaper, and he put it on her tombstone as well. He wrote, here lie the bones of Mary Jones. For her, life held no terrors. She lived an old maid. She died the same. No runs, no hits, no errors. (laughs) And a lot of people, because of being burned, they just decide, you know what? I'm just going to try to not make any errors. But what John is saying here is Jesus is the one who makes it safe to make errors. In fact, you'll mess your life up if you don't learn to admit that you make errors. If you don't take responsibility for them, you know life isn't safe any way you cut it. I, many of you know, I like to ride motorcycles, and there are a lot of people. Every time anything comes up about motorcycles. Someone really well-meaning wants to let me know that they're deeply concerned that I ride a motorcycle and that they're very unsafe and that, you know, so many people, I, when my mom used to work in an emergency room at the hospital, and when I was a kid, and I rode, I've ridden motorcycles since I was like four years old, and she made me come in and sit in the emergency room and watch motorcycle victims be hauled in, <laughs> in pieces, and, you know, thought that would heal me. It didn't. But I'll tell you the truth, every time I ride a motorcycle, something happens that scares me. But you know what I'm more afraid of than, I mean, there, there are worse ways to go than to be riding along going, wow, what a beautiful, oh, hey Jesus. <laughs> but, <laughs> Which unfortunately, a cage, a car, will end up keeping you alive and just rob you of your life. But beyond that, I am more afraid of of living my life where I'm afraid to ride a motorcycle than I am of living my life riding a motorcycle. Now I'm not trying to be an evangelist for motorcycles I don't, but all I'm telling you is what you should be afraid of is living your life scared to death of failure and afraid that somehow you're gonna mess up because if that's the way you live your life you have lost before you started and I want to tell you, in a, in a loving but a straightforward way, if sin is denying that portion, that destiny that God has for you, it is a sin to live your life so, so safe that you actually won't live life. And that's what sin is. It robs you of that. It sucks the life out of you. And what John's trying to say is, hey, this is safe. Now, John had a real high-risk profession. He was a disciple of Jesus and he was one of the leaders. His, his brother James was martyred early on. But John lived to be over a hundred. He ended up writing the book of Revelation. At one point they tried to boil him in oil and it didn't work. I mean here's a guy who didn't compromise and what he's saying is hey it's safer out there than you think because we have an advocate Jesus Christ the righteous. Don't be afraid of living your life. Now again, love is that way. It's dangerous. If you love, you're going to be misunderstood. If you love, sometimes it's going to burn you badly. If you love, it's going to cost you often. People will misinterpret what you say and what you're doing and all. That's just, that's a part of it. But John's saying, no, we are the ones who are safe to love because we have an advocate. We have someone who will be there for us who will go, "Believe me, I understand. And I'll help you pick up the pieces." But please don't live your life curled up in a fetal position with your eyes closed. It's so sad, and I and I'm not belittling this at all. I know I know people who are just absolutely terrified, petrified to even go outside. And I have dear friends who have different forms of agoraphobia and anxiety. And I'm telling you, it's a very real thing to feel like I can't go out. I can't talk to anyone. I can't have contact with people. And that's a tragic thing. But you know what the real tragedy of that is? Is if you just let that go. You just go, yep, so then I'm just going to live my life here in my bedroom. You lost it's, it's tragic. It doesn't have to be that way. If you will push to go out and take those risks, you'll understand you're way safer than you thought you were. And it's much safer out there on the edge than it is hiding in denial and living a life whereby the enemy, before you even get started, has robbed your capacity for life. Because what God has for you and what the Word of God declares, and Jesus communicated is, I came that you would have life and that more abundantly. And John is just saying a lot of the time when you miss that, it's because you do not understand how safe you are in the arms of Jesus. You don't understand that he is right with you. You don't understand that he has a net beneath you. All of the thrills, all of the excitement, it's pretty much artificial. You're like a guy swinging on a trapeze, but you have a safety line attached to you. Yeah, it's kind of scary, but nothing's going to happen. We have that safety net. We have that kind of assurance. And let me tell you something. God does not want you to live your life afraid, scared to death, paranoid that you're going to sin. He goes, no, I already told you, you're going to sin course you don't try to do it. You don't try to mess your life up, but it's going to happen. And when you do, I'm there for you. When you happen, when it happens, I've already forgiven you. And as soon as you go, look what I did, he goes, what? It's gone. It's forgiven. And that's the message that he's laying out here for us. This amazing, safe, covering, protection of the God who wants to set us free, of the God who wants to allow us to live life in a way that ultimately allows love to grow inside of us. And the result of it is we'll start to connect and to know God instead of resenting him. And our life will start to look like his and people will go, I like hanging with you. You're refreshing. This is This is really cool. This feels like the way life is supposed to be because that's how he's designed it. And so he calls us to do that. And John just says, this is what I'm talking about when it comes to life. It's about the fact that you are taken care of and you can live your life wide open, eyes wide open, never resorting to denial, Never resorting to retreating, never putting yourself in a fetal position with your eyes closed so that, you know, nothing touches you. Hey, it's going to touch you, but it's going to be okay. It's kind of like when, if some of you guys, maybe some of you girls, have ever done a sport where that's a contact sport, and you're scared to death to be hit. And I know when I started in martial arts, and, and I knew that a part of it, in fact, when I started martial arts, I was hoping I would never get in a fight. I was hoping that I would never even have to compete in a match, because I didn't like the idea of somebody hitting me. But an amazing thing happens. After the first couple times you get bloodied up, or you get your nose broken, or you, know, you get ribs broken, or whatever, you realize, I'm okay. I get well. In fact, I've found that I hit a lot harder when I hurt. And, you know, that's life. It's like, don't, don't be so afraid that you don't do it. Go out there and take your lumps and realize he's going to be with you, and you will get through it. You will make it. Don't listen to the enemy. The enemy will first try to get you to do stupid, self-destructive things, and then when that fails, he will just try to get you to do nothing. Either way robs you of life. Don't do that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word that John shared with us. John was a guy who really, man, a loving guy, a guy who knew how much you loved him. He felt close to you. And he had the courage to always show love to others. He became known as the apostle of love even as an old man when he couldn't preach sermons anymore, as they would set him on a chair in front of the church and he would just, according to church history, he would just say, beloved, let's love one another. Lord, we'd love to be that kind of person who's just, when everything else fails, that we are reduced to love. But God, the only way that happens is if we stop being afraid and we understand how simple forgiveness is and we understand that we're called to walk in the light and we know that we have an advocate, a comforter, a sidekick who will always be there for us no matter what and everything we go through he's already been through it and come out without failing. So Lord teach us what life is about. Deliver us from all of the behavior that robs us of life.